Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masecha Shabbat, daf Samech Hey, 65. Um, we're going to continue here with a Mishnah, which is doing the same thing that the other Mishnah would have been doing, namely talking about what people can walk out with wearing or not wearing, or whether it's considered carrying. And it happens to be, I think, particularly salient to our current experience worldwide. I'll explain why that is. Okay, so some of this is really beyond my purview today, but the Mishnah says that a woman can go out with a coin that she ties on a wound on her foot. Now, the Gemara talks about why this is. We're going to leave this aside. Um, the case that I think is the most interesting to me today is the young girls who would go out with strings, or it even says, or even wood chips, which I find a little more disturbing, um, that are in the holes in their ears, meaning they've had pierced ears, and they have strings in them to keep the holes open, and then they'll use they'll wear earrings as they get older, once they get older. Um, then the Mishnah continues to talk about how you know, women in the in Arab countries could wear a veil, and women in Madai um, in in Medea, right? Mediot Madai. Um, in English, I guess it's Medea, whatever. They can go out with cloaks that are fastened with stones, meaning that is the what we'll call the prevailing practice, the minhagamakom in that area, and so that's considered what women would wear. So then that's acceptable. The implication, of course, is that if you are not in Medea and this is what you want to wear. Um, I don't know, we're not talking here about if somebody from Medea would travel to somewhere else, but if you're, you know, not Median and you don't live there and you never were there and you suddenly want to try on this, you know, this this attire, um, it might be a nice costume, but it's probably not okay on Shabbat. Okay, and then, um, right, so then the the Mishnah rather says, any person in any place is permitted to go out in Shabbat clothes in whichever way, but Chachamim spoke in the present, meaning they're talking about prevailing current situations of what might actually be worn. And then, again, another case, a woman might fasten her her cloak in a certain way, and she might do it with a nut or with a coin, and any of those things are fine, as long as she doesn't do them meaning the idea is that if you've done this, and this is the norm, and you didn't even think about it, then you're fine, but if you're you know, making use of something that is not otherwise a Shabbat um, permissible thing, then obviously either you're ending up in a muksa situation or you're ending actually ending up actually in a usher situation, prohibited chatat, etc. This is in the seems to be in the muksa category. Now, the reason I want to talk about this mission so much, and I'm not even as interested as I usually might be in the Gemara's analysis here, is because I think that the implications of this mission are very, very great, and also yesterday's stuff for that matter, for our current. Um, new element of attire, namely these masks, right? That everybody is hopefully wearing um, and in the correct way, you know, you got to cover your nose and your mouth, not just your mouth, not just your nose. Don't wear it as a, what one friend calls it, a throat ornament, um, right? But all of that, you know, I can get off the soapbox. The question is, is that permissible to wear on Shabbat? Now, many of us live in, place, live in places that have a ruvin. If you live in a place with an Eruv, then carrying to begin with is not uh, is not a problem. So then even if that mask is a 
is a, an item that would be considered carrying, but you're allowed to carry, so it's okay. It would not be considered muksa as something that you know you couldn't use on Shabbat because it has a very definite use in terms of health protection, whatever you want to call it, protecting others, let's say, from your potential germs. So the question then is what happens if you live in a place that doesn't have an Erev and here is an item that is not, you know, not normal clothing. It is not part of the current uh, or the certainly not part of our normal garments up until now, right? And now what do we do? You know, is that considered carrying or not? And um, listen, I am here, I'm speculating, but, uh, and I don't think I have to speculate very far to say that it's permitted, but, um, you know, it's part of the rationale that says if uh, sanitary napkins or tampons can be considered a question of carrying for which the answer is yes, it's fine. So then here too, I would say all the more so, you know, this is an item that is fine um, that it's a legitimate question to ask, and I think I hope it's an important question to ask because it is really a departure from our normal attire. Uh, it has a function, but it's not well, it's not adornment. I mean, we're getting to adornment, right? More and more people are wearing nice masks, fancy masks, fashionable masks. There have been you know designers who are coming up with you know fun. I don't know fashion statements but a lot of people are wearing just you know surgical mask you know i don't know what they're called the disposable masks that you can get in if they're available any kind of drugstore or whatever um and and those are not particularly fashionable and they're not particularly a fashion statement so then so then now what and i think the answer still is going to be that it's permissible but i do think it's a legitimate question a real question based on everything we've seen in these dopim yeah i think the answer is obviously going to be that you can wear it because it's to protect life but again i think it's interesting to see what the iterations are uh that you know it would be um that you know it's relevant. What is the question today? And I think that's one of the things, and I can't remember where it was on the dot, but as we're speaking, I remembered it, you know, discussing that exactly that. In other words, the mission is describing what was known then. (laughs) Um, But obviously there are going to be things that come up in later generations that is, you know, the items that may need to be carried um, in their time that the mission just wouldn't know about. And I think that also speaks to sort of the tension always um, that we see with oral law, um, you know, that it's, it, it is a reflection on the one end, it's timeless, but it's also a reflection of that particular time. So there's no way that they could actually anticipate what would be the items or the questions that would come up thousands of years later. And therefore, what, you know, halakhic authorities do is they go, you know, through these lists and try to say, okay, well, if this is the item I'm discussing, what category does it best fit under? Um, and again, that that to me is always the challenge with this is, you know, taking the actual literal words and then how do we apply it to the new scenarios that we're faced with today? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. I think the fact that the Mishnah goes out of its way to say, Chazal, we're talking about their presence. Right. Right. That's an unusual statement. Right. It's a, again, it's one of these self-reflective kind of comments that we don't expect. And then when they're there, we say, oh, yes, we should take note of that. They're aware of that. We need to be as well, certainly. Right. And I, I, and I, I, it's, it's a beautiful self-reflective comment. You know, it really acknowledges. And I think Shabbat in particular, from what we've seen, right, we heat food up differently. Uh, even our sense of space is different. You know, Rishus Rabin versus Rishus HaYachid. All of these things change, but yet Chazal also wants to say it's going to remain relevant. It's just a question of 
how, what is that relevancy going to look like uh, in your particular time? So I wanted to talk about something that's uh, a little bit later on in the DAF, which is talking about Shmuel's father um, and some of the practices that he had with the girls in his household, things that he uh, did not allow them to do. And one of the things that it talks about here is their practice of going to the mikvah. Um, and it says specifically that they made mikvah for them, uh, you know, a ritual bath for them in the month of Nisan. Okay. But in Tishrei, okay they would make mats for them to be used um, in the river itself, right? So it says uh, specifically, right? And they would make this mat. So now the reason why they made the mat was because presumably dunking in a river would be a little bit more muddy, right? Because the riverbed itself is muddy. So this was a way of keeping them clean. Um, but the Gemara Namud Bet wants to explore this a little bit more fully. And I think it tells us something and teaches us a little bit something about mikvah in general and where the source of water has to come from for a mikvah. A mikvah. So it goes back to say, So it says that he made this ritual bath for them. He made this separate mikvah for them in the months of Nisan. When they say that this supports the opinion of Rav. Now, first of all, this is interesting because Rav and Shmuel are always sort of, you know, the bar palutas. They, they always are who sort of disagree with each other. And it's interesting that as a proof for the behavior of Shmuel's father, they're bringing a proof from Rav. So I think that's one thing that's very interesting here. And what Rav explains is, is the following, that when rain falls in the West, meaning in Eretz Yisrael, right in Israel, okay, they um, they know that water therefore flows into the Euphrates, right into uh, Nahar Prat. And what this is basically describing is is that what when you have a mikvah, right? Sorry, when you have a river, okay, and you have increased water flow in it, okay, which would presumably happen in the spring because of the rainfall, okay. Shmuel's father held that you couldn't actually use. Um, that as a mikvah at the time in the spring, because, you know, you couldn't really tell, in other words, if where the water is coming from. Is it water that came from the rainfall or is it water that's coming from the actual um, uh, flow of the river itself? And now why is this that's something that's important? Okay, because collected um, rainwater, okay, is usually the general way that we make a, um, is the way that we make a mikvah. But flowing water, um, you know, is, is water that's in its natural state from a spring and its river, okay? And it can't, the rainwater can somehow interfere with that type of rainwater, with the, with the flowing water. So for him, it was a question of sort of like, which was the water that was actually in, um, in the river after the rain? Was it the rainwater or was it the flowing water? And since he wasn't sure, he basically said to Mo's father, you can't use that as an actual mikvah. However, once it comes to Tishrei, okay, when presumably there hasn't been, right, it's after the summer and you haven't really had any um, waterfall, right? So then we know that it's actually the river water, it's the flowing water, um, and therefore you would be presumably allowed to, um, to actually use that as your mikvah. Now, what's interesting here is then the Gemara goes on and says, right? And he disagrees with his son Shmuel. <laughs> right? That the river is blessed from the riverbed. In other words, 
that he's saying the additional water from the from the rainfall doesn't actually do anything to the river because there's enough water that's in that river just from sort of the underground, I guess what you call the subterranean water itself. And we're not worried about the mixing of the two. Right. So Shmuel, and then it goes on to say that Shmuel disagrees with another ruling of himself. And it says, But then they have another statement of Shmuel that seems to say that, no, you could only use uh, the water of uh, of the Euphrates only in Tishrei. And that would seem to agree with his father. So, you know, I think this is just an interesting thing that's on the dot, that first of all, the proof that's used to explain his father is actually taken from Rav. It's not clear that Shmuel actually agreed with his father, which I don't think is something that we always see. Um, and also, I think this just tells us something about the whole question of where the source of the water is for mikvah. Um, you know, yes, it's sort of a, it, it's an important halachic detail, right? And that the mixing of rainwater with river water may halachically be a problem, which is sort of interesting. And I, I'm sure we'll talk about mikvah more and more as we do our dafyomi. Um, but, you know, to also see that some of these were very, uh, you know, practical issues for them. You had this huge river that obviously could be used um, and that at certain times of the year, you know, Shmuel's father felt that you weren't actually allowed to use it. And at those times of the year, he had to actually dig out and make mikvah. But this seems to have been a tradition just for the woman of his household and wasn't something that seemed to have been accepted by all of Babylonian Jewry. Which is complicated, right? Meaning we're talking when we talk about mikvot, think about what we use mikvot for, right? We eliminate an isterkarate with a mikvah. We uh, convert people, right? We make them Jewish for all future generations, presumably, right? So we want our mikvot to be accepted as, you know, a certain whether you whether it needs to be uniform or the same standard is a different question. But but the fact that he, I I find it interesting that it's uh more individualized even for a mikvah. Right. And right. Other other areas of halacha, I might expect that. Like it's been a very long time, uh, you know, since things were more individualized and we have more standardized approaches now, even though even with our diversity of practice. It's interesting to me that this is uh that this was one of the diversity. Well, right. Things. And what would the halachic ramifications be of that, right? If somebody, you know, outside of Shmuel's family used the river, you know, used uh, the Euphrates you know, in Nissan, would that be a problem for somebody who was in the family of Shmuel? Um, it seems to imply that this was a stringency just for that family. Um, but it, you know, makes me think of, you know, some of what we say about the Mahlokets of Hillel and Shammai, right? That they had different views sometimes of how, of certain people who could marry each other. And it had real halachic ramifications, right? That, you know, one felt certain marriages were allowed um, and others felt that other marriages, you know, certain relationships were not allowed, but yet they still all married within with, within each other's households, um, you know, between. Right. The I'm reminded also. Sorry, I'm reminded also of the discussion in Psachim, which we'll come to, you know, relatively soon um, about about keeping the chumras of different places when you are in a different place. But that does not invalidate the kula, right, the leniency from the other place. And I think the fact that the Gemara doesn't say that it has any implication, I think just shows that this was like their particular tradition. But obviously they would accept somebody who, you know, did use uh, the Euphrates um, in Nissan, because I think it would have made a mention of the fact if it was that problematic to them.
Oh, I agree. Right. Yeah, but yeah. again, I think just a little complicated tidbit that's in the middle, um, you know, just explaining, you know, McVoud. And I think also that the proof of Shmuel's father comes from Rub was also interesting to me. Very, very. Yes. So with that, we'll end. That's our tap for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Um, leave us a comment about what you thought about today's staff on our Facebook page. And until tomorrow's staff, go and learn.